Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social, Inc. Uh, Today, we have Michael Cartwright on the show. I don't think he needs any introduction. Everyone knows him as the CEO of American Addiction Centers. Um, But before we talk to Michael, I want to introduce our sponsors, Verify TX. The Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Verify TX, the leading on-demand insurance verification platform for the recovery industry. When seconds can make the difference between admitting a qualified client or losing them to a change of heart, a competitor, or worse, VerifyTX gives your team the tools they need to save a life. Available 24-7, 365 from any device. Start by seeing the 15-minute demo today at VerifyTX.com and be sure to mention the Recovery Executive Podcast for a special offer. As you all know, I highly recommend Verify TX, John Wagner. They're fantastic partners with a lot of centers, our clients, um, as well as many other centers across the country. So definitely check them out at VerifyTX.com. Okay, so we are meeting with Michael Cartwright, and I really appreciate him taking the time to come on the show. He's obviously extremely busy. Michael's going to be talking about two things. So obviously everyone in the field is quite interested in what's going on with AAC. There's been a large drop in the stock price. And just across the field, we've seen a lot of closures and bankruptcies, right? Elements, Sovereign, Clean, Morningside, um, and many smaller centers that don't make the papers. So we talked to Michael about what he's seen there, as well as kind of overall industry trends. And then we also get his experience. You know, he's got over 20 years of experience in the field, um, working with foundations, building AAC. He's built some nonprofits before, and he's been in the addiction treatment space for a long time. So we get his insights on what it's like to kind of start small and build the importance of capital when it comes to behavioral health and addiction treatment, and what it's like owning a public company, which is an experience that you know almost no one else has in this field. So with that, I'm sure you guys want to hear what Michael has to say. Let's dive in. Hey, Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, your busy day here, and joining us on the show. So I'm sure everyone knows you here, but just in case, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, thank you for the time today. I appreciate it. Enjoy being on your show. My name is Michael Cartwright. I'm the CEO and Chairman of American Addiction Centers. We were talking before the show here, but can you give us a little bit about your history? I don't think a lot of people know that you actually started multiple programs and had nonprofits that you ran before you started AAC. So can you kind of give us that background a bit? Yeah, absolutely. And um, thanks to HCI, Health Communications, Inc., uh, published a book of mine that I did back in 99 called Believable Hope, and I gave an overview of my background. I mean, I'm a person in recovery. I struggled with addiction and mental health issues from the age of 16 to 23. I got sober, found my way to 202 here in Nashville. It's a clubhouse that I'm still actively involved in, and got sober, found a sponsor. About a year later, did what a lot of people in early recovery do. We decided we want to give back help others, and I got a job working at a community mental health center, going to school at night for psychology and counseling, and worked there, actually met my wife there. She was also a counselor, and we started a not-for-profit, Foundations Associates, in 1995 to help people with schizophrenia and addiction, and we've been doing it ever since, um, working together for almost 27 years now. Wow, that's great. And you work together with your wife, which is something we were talking about. And I was surprised because I'm not quite sure I could work together with my wife. I love her, um, but working in the same office would be hard. So, <laughs> You know, we're both passionate about helping people. We both got into the field for similar reasons. I got into it for my own recovery and my own personal issues. She got into it. She had a father that struggled with alcoholism and got passionate about helping people with this disease as well. And you know, we just found that we liked it, we were good at it, we enjoyed it. Uh, we built up a not-for-profit here in Tennessee. We had services, served on average about 2,000 people a day at the height of our services. And every service line from detox to case management did that up until about 2004. And then we created a company called Foundations Recovery Network, which you may have heard of, uh, has programs like Michael's House, The Canyon, La Paloma, Memphis, and we created that from scratch and built it up and really, really proud of the services that they offer in the community still going strong. I know they're part of uh, UHS now, I believe. Yes. Yeah, they just bought them last year, um, if I remember right. And then are mm-hmm. you still, I, I can't remember, are you still involved with one or some of the nonprofits? 
Um, I am. I do a lot locally here, a nonprofit called Mending Hearts. It's a passion project of ours. Um, we do a lot of work with women um, that are, you know, have no resources, have no funds, that kind of thing. So we're still actively engaged, but we don't run a not-for-profit like we used to. Uh, we decided to create American Addiction Centers in 2011 with really a very, very specific focus. I've, I've always felt like there was lack of capital in the industry. If we're going to improve our processes, if we're going to have better um, technology or counseling or, you know, we should be trying to figure out how do we improve the, the uh, delivery of care for the disease. And I've always felt like it's really underfunded. A lot of people always scream, that where's the outcome funding? Where's the outcomes for addiction treatment? Well, the insurance companies doesn't don't pay you to do outcome studies. And so if the federal government is not going to invest in outcome studies for the addiction space, you're not going to get it unless others that have capital, like bigger companies, can invest in research. You know, there, there's a lot of reasons we did AAC, but the, 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 the main one has always been we've always felt like we've been undercapitalized uh, in, in the services that we're delivering. Hmm. That's a really interesting perspective. I have not heard that before, but I can definitely see what you're saying. I mean, you're right. There is um, a lot of private equity starting to move in, but that certainly wasn't the case five, you know, 10 years ago for sure. Well, and the challenge with private equity is the time horizon. So my time horizon is 20 years out, and, and I'm thinking about over the next 20 years, how do we build a program that has great services? And so if you look at any of our projects that we've done since 2011, we build the treatment centers and the programs to last the next several decades, and we invest heavily in infrastructure, we invest heavily in the physical plant, we invest heavily in the technology. Uh, to try to improve patient process, like early sense technology, things like that that we put into our centers, we would not be able to do that if we had a time horizon of private equity, which is about three years. And so we really wanted to go public so we would have a much longer horizon, much longer perspective to build this company. And it's it's really worked out that way. Um, I, I, I think it's true that in the public space, it can be challenging, but the challenges are offset by the access to capital and the long time horizon that it gives you to really, um, you know, build a great company. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from private to public? You know, how did that work out for you? What What did you learn through that experience? Well, that's a lot <laughs> um, to to um, answer. It, it it's probably been a progression uh, for me. You know, I, I originally did a not-for-profit organization, and after about 10 years, I found out that it was very challenging to raise funds, to build a building, or to add programs, or to add service lines that you think, think that are essential to the area population. You're always looking for a grant to write, or you're looking for what is the public funding availability to provide services, not what is the right services to provide. And, and so... Um, we realized that we probably need to go to the private sector. We we partnered with private equity with Foundations Recovery Network. And again, we did some really great things together, but I feel like the timeline or time horizon that they were thinking was definitely different from mine because research studies themselves take three to four years. So if you're talking about investing in R&D and research and development, you're talking about a five to 10 year out uh, time horizon. So when in in 2009 to 2011, I had to sit out a no compete after exiting foundations, and I made the decision that really the best route to go would be similar to what HCA did um, here in Nashville. And in the 1960s, HCA went public and they rolled up a lot of hospitals. They probably own about 500 hospitals now uh, throughout the United States and the United Kingdom, and felt like that that really was the model I was looking for. So I found some people that helped, you know, found uh, HCA, a guy named Lucius Birch, another guy named Dick Raxdale, and they had taken multiple healthcare companies public and they had, you know, had built large scale companies in the healthcare space to really try to solve a problem like I was looking for. And, you know, so we started in 2011, went public in 2014. Um, but, but it's been an evolution. It's not been 
I woke up one day and decided we're going to go do this. It was an evolution process that I realized that the form of capital is really what you're needing. And there's lots of forms of capital, whether it be in the not-for-profit sector or the for-profit sector. Um, the public markets, to me, seem, from a from a time horizon standpoint, um, is, is really the way to go. Uh-huh. That's a really interesting perspective. But I agree with you, right? Those longer time horizons are really key, especially, I think, in the um, behavioral health space where you can't do something in just one or two years. So I know you guys are a publicly traded company, so you're limited in some of the things that you can discuss. But obviously, you know, AAC has been seeing a drop in its stock price. Um, you've sold off a couple centers. Do you just want to give us a little bit of an update about what you're seeing and, and where you think the company's going from here? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think AAC is probably a pretty good bellwether to the entire industry. Um, you know, the behavioral space is a little choppy. Um, primarily in the addiction private insurance sector. Starting in a late 2016, early 2017, commercial insurance plans all over the country had been really pushing hard against the providers, well, it, whether it be length of stay or whether it be just paying for services in general. And so it's been very, very tough. And, you know, we're 70% in that sector of behavioral. So I would probably experience similar things that Hazleton and other people. I know they've had scenarios where they've had to lay off staff and have to close down operations. I don't think we're any different than that. We just have to publicly announce it when we do that. So it's a lot more information to digest about AAC versus the entire industry. But as I've outreached other CEOs in the industry, I don't think anybody's uh, not struggling either dealing with the headwinds related to the insurance companies or census itself. You've got to realize over the last three to five years, there's been a lot of new players that's come into the scene, a lot of new outpatient options, a lot of new buprenorphine clinic options, a lot of new methadone clinic options all over the country that would lead to a, a less need for residential beds throughout the United States. And so I think there's been this belief that because we have an opioid epidemic related to deaths associated with fentanyl and opioids, that therefore there's lots more drug addicts in the United States, and therefore there's been a lot of new competitors come into the space. Many of them know the industry well, like myself and many of the other organizations, and some of them really don't know the space. Um, so that that's part of it, and we're just happen to be the, the one that has to be public about it and share everything about what's going on, whether it be our census drop that occurred in the fourth quarter uh, or whether the headwinds that we're dealing with the insurance companies last year. So it, it, it's pretty understandable, and the stock price is a reflection of what the market thinks our company looks for in the future. And obviously we're not growing, and, and usually a company at our size needs to be growing rapidly for the stock to tick up. So... I think a lot of people take the stock price and assume that's how the company's doing. Not necessarily. It's not always a correlation. So, look, I don't, I don't think we're any different than anybody else in the industry right now. And, and, and we had this conversation before our show that you've had the same conversations with folks in the industry yourself. Yeah, it's pretty common right now. You know, we're doing a pretty extensive nationwide poll, and the majority of the centers are under 50% in census across the U.S., so I think you're right. You know, you guys have to tell everyone where <laughs> a lot of other centers, right. you know, they're not so open with that information. So for sure. So when you started AAC, can you give us a little bit of background of kind of how you started it and then maybe walk us through the process of how you've grown it over the past, you know, nearly a decade? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was in 2009, 2008, I had a, um, 2010, I had a no-compete with a private equity fund that I started Foundations Recovery Network with, and that was over in July of 2011. And so July of 2011, I had pre-decided to come back into the industry and had laid out a vision and a, and a plan that would take a company from kind of get you know business plan concept to let's go public. Um, again, back to, I felt like that was the best way to access uh, capital to really be able to grow the business, do research and development, do research projects, you know, 
buy into technology like early sense technology. I mean, all the things that we look at that we've really been able to, you know, have a better clinical program and physical plant for our customers to come into has all really been made possible by having access to capital. Without that, I don't know that we could have built the facilities we've built and grown the way we've grown. So we really kind of jumped back into the space in 11 with multiple transactions um, from a better tomorrow, treatment solutions, um, the greenhouse, Desert Hope, all four of those transactions kind of happened back to back to back to back all within about 12 months. And, and, and really that was, um, yes and no. I mean, it, it, it may seem fast, but, um, if you've done it for 20 years, it, I don't, I don't know that it's as fast. I mean, treatment solutions was an independent organization that had a good group of team members. Mike Blackburn, uh, ran a great company and it was very easy to get integrate, uh, treatments, um, a Better Tomorrow the company had been around for 10 years. I, I knew it for a long time and how they operated. Um, De Novo projects were the greenhouse and Desert Hope. And, and you know, getting that started and, and up and off the ground, it really was about a 12-month process. Sure. Can you give us a little bit of background about the strategy behind the acquisitions? You know, were you looking at particular levels of care, insurance contracts? You know, what was kind of the impetus for the different acquisitions? You know, a lot of people look at business deals like that. I really don't. It's more about the relationship and knowing who you're working with. And so I had had a long history with Mike Blackburn. For many, many, many years, we're both in recovery. We're both passionate about recovery. We both have sponsors and sponsor people even today and go to meetings together. And so I knew who he was, and I had a long history with him. Um, Jared Men's the same way. Knew him for a long time in recovery. I knew his mom was in recovery. Um, knew his sister for a decade. Like, I had relationships with a lot of these uh, folks. So if you go back and take a look at all of our acquisitions, there's usually some type of relationship that's been built more so than a business deal. I don't really approach it from a business perspective. I approach it from a relationship perspective. And same thing with AdCare. AdCare is our most recent transaction. And I've known the Hillis family for a long time and respected them for a long time in the field. Knew they had great clinical programming. Knew that we had a similar sense of uh, how we do things, and and so it really wasn't a business deal. I was I wasn't going to look for ad care. It was really the relationship that I already developed. So that may be a different for people, but that's how I've always operated for the last twenty, thirty years. Surround yourself with winners. It's it's element three in my book, um, Believable Hope. If you read it, it's surround yourself with the people that are going to help you succeed. And so it's been a big mantra of mine. It's a big mantra of our companies. What about, um, so it sounds like maybe this is probably going to be a similar answer, but when you're looking at an acquisition versus doing a de novo, you know, do you factor that in or what, what do you factor in when you're looking at de novo versus um, acquiring? Again, acquiring would have to be a relationship been built. Um, I don't know that we would acquire something just from a spreadsheet or a business transaction. There, there would have to be some relationship that had been built of why we would want to bring that into the AAC family. Um, De Novo is a lot easier, cut and dry, related to is there a need in that state? Has there been a request by the commissioner or the governor in that state for more services? That, you know, is an insurance company saying that they have a network problem in that state? I mean, the greenhouse really, if you go back to when we started the greenhouse in Texas, there was very few operators in to, and when we opened that facility. In Las Vegas, there was very few operators. Now, there's a lot more now. Um, I think maybe that we've shown that that market works. But when we first started them, it was a, it was really a lack of uh, service providers in that state. For sure, yeah. I mean, the Dallas-Fort Worth area in particular has really exploded. You know, it's a big market these days. From your perspective, you know, as you kind of maybe you're a first mover in certain states and things like that, what do you do from an organizational standpoint or a strategic standpoint to insulate AAC, you know, against competition as it inevitably comes in? 
You know, I don't really look at this as competition. I'm an old alcohol and drug counselor, and I've never thought of other alcohol and drug counselors as my competition. I look at it as we're all trying to help people. Um, I, initially, we do a market survey to kind of see, is there a need for another provider in that area? But look, once we're there, and now other providers have come into the market, I don't really operate differently. I mean, you know, hey, maybe they think there is a need for three or four or five or ten providers in a particular city. Um, you know, but once I'm there, we, we've always, you know, tried to maintain good programming and solid census. And, you know, it's definitely been a, a little challenging over the last couple of years. I, th- I do think you have a lot of more options today um, in every city in the United States than we had five years ago. So what do you see as the challenges from your perspective then in terms of AAC's future growth? Future growth or how much we've grown? I mean, we've had almost a 50% annual rate of return growth. I mean, we've gone from business concept in 2011 to $350 million in revenue. It's, it's, I feel like our pace of growth has almost been too fast. Um, I'm very happy with the pace of growth. We planned out having one acquisition in 2018, and that was AdCare, and that was it. And, and in terms of future growth, I'm not really thinking like that right now. I usually deal with one year at a time and map out a strategy specifically for that year. I mapped out a strategy for 2018, and I felt like we were on a great pathway until about August, September, when Google did an algorithm update and really you know, deteriorated about 30% of my call volume. And so that really made life challenging and census challenging. So we had to decide, are we going to be a smaller company? Um, are we going to try to get back our census? Like, so we had to develop a strategy for 2019. Um, but 2019, we're not focused on growth. We're focused on, you know, just stability and making sure we have, you know, the right programs in the right states. Um, that's really our focus for 2019. Sure. And you've been in the field for a long time, so you've seen the ups and downs. I mean, it can be a fairly volatile space. Oh, yeah. You know, it's been, it's been very, I think it's been very stable for a while. Most of behavioral is still very stable. I want to be, make myself clear. I don't think of all of behavioral health care as being unstable. Um, the Medicaid, Medicare space, the government sector space within addiction has actually improved dramatically. Governments are improving Medicaid rates. Uh, the Trump administration has put a lot of new money into addiction treatment for state block grant funding. That's all great for public providers like us in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, where we provide public sector services. But on the commercial side of things, things have been a little more choppy. And so the best way to insulate us is to diversify. Um, which I think if you see and look at our programs that we operate nationwide, we're very diverse from a payer standpoint today. Uh, we're diverse from service offerings today, much more so than we were five years ago. So we've been on a trend over the last three years to really diversify, diversify our payer sources, um, look at in-network options, Medicaid, Medicare options, as well as continuing to do the private sector work. And, and really, that's to, that, that to us is 2019, not really how do we grow. I, I don't think with the choppiness out there, is, is, that should really be on anybody's mind right now. So something I've talked a lot about is what I see as kind of the downtrend in the PPO um, policies and reimbursements on that end. I, I, I hear that. I haven't seen any data to support what you just said. Are you talking about internally or are you looking at the field overall? I look at how many PPO policies are sold nationwide, and that number has actually increased year over year. And so I'm not looking at any data to support that PPO policies are not being sold. Now, what we have had happen is insurance companies have created a complex process whereby um, if you are a PPO client wanting to use out-of-network benefits, like many families and patients have done in the past, They've decided, look, there's not good options in New York City, so I'm going to go to Florida to treatment. And I hear a lot of people complain and go, why are these people going out of state? Well, they've gone out of state for so many years because there hasn't been that local option available for them to go to. Now, what is nice to see happen in the industry is we're starting to get local options. And so I do think that's happening, but I, but I certainly haven't seen 
less PPO customers in the system or less um, insurance policies being sold or anything like that. I, I, I don't see where people are getting their data from. What about on the reimbursement level? Because at least for the PPOs, we're seeing at least higher deductibles or lower reimbursements, particularly in Florida. I mean, have you seen that data on your end? Absolutely. Now, the higher deductible policies is really what's come into play, and it's costing family members more to use their out-of-network benefit today than it did five years ago. So that is true. So some customers may determine, hey, I'd rather use my in-network benefit versus my out-of-network benefit because it's going to cost the family more money. So that is happening. So, so I get what you're saying that maybe less people with a PPO policy are going to out-of-state treatment. Maybe they're staying local. So that, that is some trends in the industry that, that we're seeing as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's what I mean by that downtrend. It's not necessarily lower volume, but lower usage or lower ability to sure. use. Yeah. So in the next year, you know, what trends are important to you? What trends are you looking at in the field that you think you guys need to keep an eye on? Um, I don't see any major shakeups in 2019 in the field in general, other than this continuation of what we got right now, which is you have an awful lot of competition um, going for customers like you just described that maybe there's less of them. Maybe they're going to choose in-network options or they're choosing to stay in an outpatient locally, which is, you know, hey, that's good for if the families can do that and that's what they choose to do. You know, we maybe we're looking at additional outpatient options or local, uh, local smaller programs in network. But you know, that's probably more of a 2020. We're really not. You know, I, I try to keep tabs with the EBIS report that is put out every year on our industry, which is probably the best source of data for the industry, and then talk to a lot of other CEOs of other organizations to try to see if there's any uh, trends. I mean, honestly, I think that. It, we're, we're back to a little bit better stability than we were in 2016 and 17 as an industry goals for, from my standpoint. But we'll see what Google does and how the changes happen in, uh, on the Internet because that can impact the industry as well. For sure. I find it interesting Google started their own drug and alcohol treatment center. Did they? I've not heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I can get you some information on it later if you like. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I would definitely be interested in seeing that. So I was going to ask, as you have grown the organization, you know, I worked for Disney for a while in China when they entered that Chinese market and we slowly scaled up a school system there. And like you said, we grew too fast, right? We grew from 12 centers in two cities to 44 centers in 12 cities in under two years. And it was just crazy growth. And we had a lot of growing pains because of it. Um, so any suggestions or comments you have on growing and growing sustainably at the same time as growing fast? Any lessons you've learned through that experience? Um, lots, probably too many for the podcast. <laughs> um, you know, it, I mean, it just depends. Look, there's lots of things that if I was doing it over, like I, I go back eight years that I've been at this at AAC, and then in 15 years prior to that was with foundations. And, and look, would I do things differently if I knew today what I knew 20 years ago? Um, sure. But, you know, you, you sometimes don't know what you don't know. I, I'm not sure that we could have grown slower, to be honest with you. Um, being a public company, we, we're really a little small on the, on the small side to be a public company at, 300 million in revenue, we really see much larger companies because it is very complicated. And I don't think anyone in our industry really fully grasped how complicated it is to be a public company and how much time and energy and resources are spent on that. And you have to also deal with negative publicity that sometimes is just generated to put your stock price down or so there's a lot of variable factors in being a public company that you really running a not-for-profit or running a, a for-profit private company that you just don't experience. And and so, you know, I, I, but I don't know that we could have grown at a different pace for what we chose to do. Um, I always look back on it and go, what could I learn next in, in 2019, 20, 21, 22? How could we grow at a different pace or a different way? Um, I certainly hope we've, we're, we're learning lessons along the way.
but but really every pa- every pathway to grow in your company is so variable. I can't really give lessons of what worked for me may work for someone else. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't know that if it's all, if it's always apples to apples. Now, that's a really interesting comment in this field because I find there's a lot of copycatting, right? What are you doing? How are you finding your marketing? What are you using in Google, right? How do you build your website? How do you do your media? I, I see a lot of copycatting, and I think I agree with you that you can't just see someone's business model and copy it, right? If I could do that, I could look at Starbucks and I could build a national coffee chain, right? It's not that easy. Right. <laughs> right. It's all about the people and the execution, and and that's the biggest challenge many times, and especially um, the bigger you get in this industry. Look, we all started, or a lot of us, not all of us, but many of us started like I did. I got sober. I went into the field. I worked at a local community mental health center. I went back to school at night to get my degree. I went back and got my alcohol and drug counselor certification, and I started working in the field. And then before I knew it, I found out that I was decent at it and surrounded myself with really good people to make me look better and started my own thing. And that was over 20 years ago. So it's it's one of those things that a lot of other CEOs in the addiction space are similar to me. And and we're, normally there's just a lot of smaller organizations. So there's no how do you go public in the addiction space? There's no playbook on that. Or how do you raise capital in the addiction space? There's really no playbook on that because it's something that the industry really hasn't done very effectively over the last 50 years. Um, so that's something that I think our industry, through AAC or through external factors unrelated to AAC, the market is going to aggregate in some form or fashion because health insurance plans and the government want it to happen. You, you can't you can't have a provider network in some of these states where you have 85 providers, and and so I do think there's going to be a, a little more shakeup in our industry over the next decade related to how do you deliver care, and and the, and what the not for profits should be worried about, not AAC. We're the least of their worries. Um, I'm very much aligned with the not for profits, and I've ran not for profits as much of my career as I have for profits. What they really need to be worried about is large pools of capital and technology companies that want to totally disrupt healthcare, because that truly could change the face of healthcare overnight. We've seen it in the automobile industry. We're seeing it in all kinds of industries where, in you know, things are getting disrupted in a major way. And so, I think healthcare, in general, the cost of it, the cost to our citizens, the cost to the government. Um, people are looking for ways to disrupt it, not just addiction treatment. I mean, every part of healthcare. And so I think we'll get caught up in that. So for me, I'm, I'm trying to look out 10 to 20 years and go, what does the landscape look like? How are the insurance companies and the payers, the government payers or the insurance payers really thinking about this? And so we're doing a little contemplation on that. I, I, I do think that's going to unfold over the next five to 10 years, though. Hmm. Those interesting comments. One of the things we've talked about on this show and that I've seen is this development in telehealth. Is that something that you guys are incorporating or looking at at all? Absolutely. I mean, telehealth could be a game changer. I think the reason it hasn't been so far is that human beings aren't ready for it, right? So are you really ready on your iPhone to talk to your doctor? And are you feel comfortable with that, especially when it's a you're depressed or you're psychotic or you're anxious or you're drunk. I think with my kids a generation like millennials and, and younger, they're going to be all about telemedicine. I think telemedicine may be the norm for everything, not just addiction or psychiatric treatment. Right now it's working really well in rural areas and it works well where you ha- we have some staffing shortages. It can work really well. And the prison systems worked it, uh, extremely well, uh, but you haven't seen it adopted nationwide. Um, but I think you're going to see that in the next decade is you will, you will see the adoption, but it's, it's taken the public to accept the adoption of, uh, there's a lot of platforms out there that have some great outpatient platforms through the internet. But none of that's taken off. I invested in a, a, a project we called Sober Circle years ago through foundations. And we thought, let's build a community for, you know, people in recovery online and, and let them go to meetings and share and communicate with one another. 
And I thought it was the brightest idea, and it was just an absolute flop. It did not work out. And what I realized was, you know, users weren't wanting that. So a lot of times we can think something is a great idea, but if, you know, the buyer at the end of the day is the one making the decision, I just don't think people are ready yet for telemedicine. But it, it is coming fast. Yeah, I agree. Um, going back to one of those comments you said about the challenges of being a public company, you know, other obviously providers don't understand that it's a very different experience and you've had some interesting experiences, I think, because of it. Uh, so, you know, whatever you want to talk about in regards to it, but you got called in front of Congress, for example, you know, which I am not sure would have happened if you weren't a public company. Um, you know, what was that experience like, or, you know, how do you feel with that added gaze that, you know, other people don't have to, I don't think I got called in, I don't think I got called in front of Congress because of being public. I think I got called in front of Congress because of NATAP, the national association of treatment providers for some reason, which is very strange to me, considering I was a board member, I served on it forever at foundations. I, you know, go to meetings with a lot of those guys. It's shocking to me that they're somehow scared of AAC or, or something. But I, it was a very weird dynamic with um, Tattis. I mean, not Tattis, but but Hazelton and um, Natap claiming that they didn't. Even, I mean, they they used to buy calls from me huh. for them to get up there and actually say that they didn't even know or weren't. It's just. I don't think that had anything to do with uh, being public, though. I think the being public part is the regulatory requirements, the legal requirements, the accounting requirements, and the fact that there's massive big hedge funds out there that do nothing but try to push your stock down because they're betting against your stock going up. Just the opposite. So you actually have firms out there dedicated to doing nothing but churning negative press for American addiction centers. And they actually make money. Actually, they're called short sellers. And that group of short sellers has been very successful in the last couple of years. Um, but you know what? I'm not phased by that. I, I was proud to go before Congress. I was happy to answer their questions, happy to talk to them at any time. I'm an open book. Anybody that knows me or comes and spends any time with me knows that. Um, that kind of stuff I look at as being a positive bit of being public. The, the negativity... Um, you know, I, I don't quite understand. I know HCA struggled with the same thing when they were um, aggregating hospital systems in the 60s and 70s. I think they had a lot of similar pushback. But you know what? People will get used to it over time, and I, I, I've got a thick skin. You know, I think that's something we were talking about before the show is there's, a, you know, sometimes a sentiment in the industry that, you know, it's like, like you're saying, well, well, why did I get called in front of Congress? Maybe there's some other things going on here. Um, or there's a sentiment sometimes you hear out in the field that, you know, there's like this heads of beds approach over at AAC. And so I just wanted to get your response on that. You know, how you how you feel that about that or, you know, why you think they're not correct. You know, I, 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 again, I think a lot of people in the industry have gotten caught up with some of these short seller reports. Um, a, a couple of years back, the industry competitors, people that were probably worried about me coming into their marketplace, were sending out, like, literally a 21-year-old kid from South Carolina's article about AAC, as, as though it was a factual article. And, you know, I, I don't know if people are doing it because they really don't understand um, they don't care. They don't want to take the time to get to know somebody and, and actually know what they're doing, or they generally have a, um, you know, reason to see us not succeed. So I, I really don't know what is in the heart of others, but all I know is what's in my heart, and I have no ill feelings. I, I you know, work a program. I had the same sponsor I had that I met in Nashville over 26 years ago, and he's an old-school hardliner, and you know, I don't get caught up in resentments or get caught up in the negativity. I'm, I'm quite sad to see our industry sometimes get caught up in it when the 12 steps and 12 traditions teaches us not to do that. So I, I don't quite understand it. But, I, you know, heads and beds approach, that's just somebody's comment. They don't know me. They don't know my VP of uh, outside development. They don't know who's manning my call center. Like, if somebody wants to come spend time with me and then criticize me, I really don't mind. They can criticize to my face. Um, I've had very little of that, though. I've actually had no criticism to my face um, whatsoever. So I find it quite interesting when they 
comment negatively when I'm not around. So, you know, it is what it is. Like I said, I don't spend a lot of energy on that. I know what our company's doing and how well we do things and what our clinical product is and how we deliver it to the customers that we serve. And I'm, I feel very proud of it. I know what I did at foundations and I was proud of that. And I'm even more proud of AAC and what we've built. So, you know, so let's focus on some of those, you know, key um, differentiators that you've got. So you, you know, your goal, part of the goal is to get all this capital to, you know, have these improvements and be able to do the research and be able to install, you know, tech systems and economies of scale. What are aspects of AAC that you think you guys do, you know, that are cut above the rest? I mean, I start with the physical plant. Like, so when I went to treatment myself and found myself in hospital beds, which I've been a patient myself, um, I was always a little mortified by the condition of some of the physical plants in our industry. And so I was always really um, a big fan of, you know, when I went to Sierra Tucson and, and got to walk around that campus and, and really realize, wow, this is a, this is an awesome treatment program. Um, I don't know if you've been to Sierra Tucson, but I, I think it's one of the nicest physical plants. It was created in the 80s uh, that our industry ever saw. Uh, I don't know if you know, they were actually public as well. It's the only other company that went public as a uh, addiction company. But we wanted to be able to replicate what Sierra Tucson had done, was, which is build really beautiful campuses. So that when the customer comes there, you have family weekend, they, you know, it feels like Cedar sinai right? When you walk in Cedar sinai you feel it's a great feeling. They have great machinery. They have great physicians. They have great physical plants. So we wanted to make sure that when we built our de novo projects that we really had that in mind, that we, you know, we really went out of our way to make sure the technology was really solid. We had a great EMR in place that we could modify to, for our needs, that all of our systems on, every one of our programs on the exact same system. Um, and, and so it was really, you start with that, like without the capital, you can't start with a great physical plant layout structure to really accommodate the counselors, the staff. I mean, the the layout for the nursing staff is better. The layout for our physician is better. Um, so we started with that and then you add in some technology features like early sense technology is something I'm just so proud of. Um, every one of our detox beds has early sickness technology. So everybody in the industry knows distressing situations with patients happen between midnight and 6 a.m. I mean, that, that, that is just the time of night where if somebody has a heart attack, if something goes wrong, that, that's usually the shift. Um, so we invested in a technology that actually it will monitor patients' vital signs around the clock. You don't have to have a person coming in doing blood pressure cuff to know what their blood pressure is. You know what their blood pressure is all day. And so that was something that was, I actually didn't even know that it existed or it would work. And now that we've implemented it, it's very impressive from a patient safety standpoint. Um, so from a physical standpoint, a technology standpoint, it really, I think it certainly gave me a better advantage that I never had at Foundations when we created that company, um, just off the gate. And then the other thing that it really allowed me to do is really go out there and try to find great medical directors, clinical directors. I mean, staff in this industry can be challenging to find good staff. Um, you know, they have good jobs. They don't want to leave. So it, it definitely helps having capital to be able to uh, find the best clinicians in the field. So that alone has really just helped us go to the next level, from my opinion. With the capital piece, you know, I'm sure, like you said, it's all about relationships and finding the right people. You know, do you have any advice for listeners out there in terms of what you look for in a capital partner? Again, same thing. I look in the business partner relationship. Um, are they ethical, honest, do the right thing during hard times and good times? Um, you know, that's important. You, you got to, you know, look, every company goes through ups, every company goes through downs. During your downturns, you want your bankers or your financial sources to be partners and to, to know that, you know, you're going to solve the problem. Um, so I, I think trying to find capital first, you got to develop those relationships. And 
really, A, find out if you want capital. I, I think some people may not understand the, you know, you really don't control anything when you get capital involved. Like I was the founder and CEO of foundations and I really truly controlled it. I, I had I owned 95% of it. I, you know, it was mine and my wife's baby from scratch. Um, you know, with AAC day one, I didn't own majority of it. So I think it really just depends. Do you really want to have access to capital? Make sure you really understand what that means and then find a really great partner uh, to work with. And there's lots between real estate partners, banks, private equity firms. There's lots of capital partners out there. I think you just got to find who fits best with your, your personality and how you work and your management team. You hit a really good point there, though, too, that there's these ups and downs. And I'm sure you've seen a lot within the industry in the time that you've been in it. You know, but I think a lot of people oh, yeah. where they're surprised now is they kind of got in on an upswing, right? And that upswing is going right, down right. right now, and they haven't experienced that before. Yeah. But, you know, you've been there, you've seen it, and you know how to adjust for the downtime as well as the times it's good. You have to. And, you're, and I do believe you're onto something there. I do believe that that is what's happening right now, and there are are going to be firms that do really well during this choppiness and there's going to be in you know firms that really struggle during this choppiness and that's why it's so important to have the right capital partner right you know or if you're running a not-for-profit to have the right board of directors that can understand hey we're having struggles here i had struggles in my not-for-profit i had great times in my not-for-profit i've had struggles in my you know this company so you're right. You got to understand the the ebbs and tides of the industry and what's going on, and and really your partners and the relationships are just so so important. And and that's why I really never let any of the negative press or negative bellies out there bother me at all because I have great partners, and I have great staff, and I have great management team, and a great board of directors that I don't let any of that outside noise bother me. Um, as long as you know you got strong partners with you, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes down to working with good people. That, that's good business. Yep. It's good for your community. You know, um, it's good for the patients, right? Uh, last question for you is just a general one. Um, so rather than not sure. talk about AEC in particular, but there's question marks in the field internally about, you know, does the field have room for growth or is it just going to consolidate now? Have we kind of capped out our bed capacity, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or is it just a move towards localization like you're talking about? So maybe it's not the flyaway stuff anymore. Um, so just kind of comments on that overall. I agree with all that. <laughs> I, I agree that there's going to be a lot of churn out there. What, what, what the end result happens, I'm not quite sure. And I don't know that anybody knows. Um, you know, but I do think that there's continual pressure on the industry from every sector, right? From the payers, number one, because they've woken up to the fact that there's a lot of patients in the United States. About 10% of the population has this genetic makeup that I have that we're, we're, we're an addict, right? And, and we got to solve that through multiple means you can, you can solve it. Do we have enough beds for that? Probably so. Um, there's been an awful lot of new beds. I don't know that anybody can really quantify exactly. I think we've gone from like 11,000 to 16,000, but it's been a dramatic uptick in, in number of uh, beds throughout the United States. But I, I do think we've gone from 11,000 facilities to 16,000 facilities in the United States just over about a five-year period. And the population to serve that clientele it's not grown but about three percent annually so i do think there's still going to be some um displacement in the industry and there's going to be some growth in the industry i think it just depends on what your you know business plan is who your capital partners are and you know what you really want to accomplish but we certainly feel good about our company and what our game plan is and We'll be here for a long time doing exactly what we're doing, whether we're a little bit smaller or a little bit bigger. Um, I don't think that really matters to us. What matters is we have a great company with great staff delivering a great program to the customers we serve. And we're part of the solution of people getting help with addiction disease. 
Well, you know, that's a really important perspective for some listeners, too, is that it's not all about growth or it's being realistic right. to the fact that if you are in a downturn period, well, maybe you need to downsize, right? Maybe you need to shed some centers or maybe you need to downgrade the number of beds that you have and move to a smaller location. But, you know, you just do what you got to do to keep serving and helping people. Exactly. You can still. I woke up this morning. The very first call I got this morning was a lady from D.C., and she needed help with a 16-year-old adolescent. We don't do adolescents, but I spent a lot of portion of my morning trying to navigate that kid to get the help that the family wanted to see him get. I'm going to do that every day no matter what. (laughs) And so if you're in this industry from that perspective, you'll be just fine. If you're in it for, hey, I'm trying to make money at it, it's probably not the best time in our industry um, to lightly go into this field if you don't fully understand it. But it's not, it's not like I, it's not like I came onto the scene yesterday though, even when I went public, (laughs) like I've been in the industry for a long time. I would be willing to bet as long as anybody on NATEP's board, probably longer than most people on NATEP's board. So I've seen a lot and I'm in it and I'll be doing it for the rest of my life at some, uh, form or fashion, whether it's what I did this morning, which was just charity helping out someone um or it's doing it for a business purpose but i don't think this is a time that you know you you look at the field and go wow this is a great business uh investment to grow um that time has passed that was 2011 12 13 14 and 15 and you know 2016 17 and 18 really has been about right-sizing your business and making sure that you have great clinical programmings to interface with the payers, right? You, you got to make sure that you're, you're, you're going to be relevant in a new, different how patients go to treatment. It, yep. It's changing. Yeah, you got to pivot. You got to adapt. I mean, that's just business, especially these days. Things move so fast. Luckily, I've got a really good board of directors that all have the same uh, passion that I do around the disease of addiction, and we're in it for the next multiple generations, not for a couple years. And and so we just realized that, hey, it's time to tighten up, make sure we have great programming, um, we're the right size, and we're, you know, financially sound to make it through the, through the downturn. Well, I really appreciate the time and the discussion. Were there any final thoughts or anything you just wanted to kind of say to listeners out there? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about business. I don't really know your audience, but I, I hope that people come away with, look, the, the disease of addiction is what we ought to be focused on, not the economics around it. It, it really is, you know, when, when this industry first started, it was a uh, volunteer industry. And my first business that I started helping people was a volunteer-only business. And so there's still a lot of charity and volunteer work that goes into helping people. And so I hope that we're not losing sight of the disease of addiction and we're just classifying it as a disease to make money off of, Um, because that's certainly not what we're doing at AAC. And I know there's lots of companies out there that are really trying to find the best way to treat people and to get the best results and, you know, to do the next right thing. So I hope people are coming away with that, not just the, the business side of the addiction treatment world. Well, that brings up actually a question for me, because one of the purposes of this podcast and something I saw in the field was there was just um, there's a lot of people with a lot of good intentions, a lot of good heart, but they didn't have the business savvy. Right. And so they couldn't operationalize that in order to continue serving people. And so I think that's something that, you know, you've been able to do well. Right. Is match the heart with the business savvy to build and to grow so you can serve more people and help more people. Um, but it's a challenge and I think you have to do both, right? You can't just want to help people. You have to have operations, right? You have to have marketing, you have to have sales, all these things that a, a business. I couldn't have is. said it better. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. All right, Michael. Well, I really appreciate the time um, for all our listeners out there. As always, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm Nick Jaworski, the owner of Circle Social Inc. And you can find this podcast anywhere where podcasts are found to download or stream. Thank you so much and have a good day.